0: ca tl talk radio season five
1: episode eight. Welcome to season five, episode eight of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funyheten and Randy Zugenfuse, where our goal is to engage you in learning motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss.
2: And I'm Lynn Feeney-Hatton. Good morning, Randy. Good morning. So today we're speaking with the authors of The Self-Driven Child, The Science and Sense of Giving Your Kids More Control Over Their Lives.
1: About that word control. (laughs) Ooh, exciting.
2: Yeah. So um, we're speaking with Bill Stixrud and Ned Johnson. And uh, Bill Sixrud, Ph.D., is a clinical neuropsychologist and a faculty member at Children's National Medical Center and George Washington University Medical School. He lectures widely on the adolescent brain, meditation, and the effects of stress, sleep deprivation, and technology overload on the brain. He has published several influential scientific articles and is on the board of the David Lynch Foundation. And also joining Bill is Ned Johnson, the founder of Prep Matters, a tutoring service in Washington D.C., and the co-author of Conquering the SAT: How Parents Can Help Teens Overcome <laughs> the Pressure and Succeed. A sought-after speaker and teen coach for study skills, parent-teen dynamics, and anxiety management, his work has been featured on NPR NewsHour, US News and World Report, Time, The Washington Post, and The Wall Street Journal.
1: So welcome to the show, Bill and Ned.
3: Thanks for having us. Delighted to be with you.
1: So an interesting partnership with two very divergent and different uh, fields of expertise. Uh, And they've come together in a really fascinating book that we want to talk about today. So uh, the book, The Self-Driven Child. Let's start with what's the big idea behind the book, and why is this an important resource for both parents and educators?
3: So the, the, the main idea behind the book is that the human brain functions really well when it has a healthy sense of control. That we found that, that a low sense of control is probably the most stressful thing you, you can experience. And that a healthy sense of control makes you much more resistant to stress. And it's also crucial for the development of autonomy, or a sense of motivation, personal motivation. So the self-driven child idea is the idea that, that we're, we're, we're trying to support parents. And, and teachers, in, in helping kids develop internal motivation that, that's, that's self-driven, that, 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 that fosters this healthy sense of control over their own lives, fosters a healthy sense of autonomy, that this is their life, and they, they can create it uh, with, with our support, uh, but that we don't always know what's best for them and, and that what we want more than anything else. It's for kids to learn that really their, their life is their responsibility and to develop their life.
1: So I think what uh, really was very exciting about this book for us, making this personal connection to the work that um, we've been doing here in our context is trying to reshape this idea of learning. And at the core of that is this idea of learner agency. And what you mentioned is control and, you know, it's, trying to get into our underlying assumptions and beliefs about, about learning and how does agency and control play into that. And so there were a lot of connections that we made as we were um, reading through your book about the work that we're doing and, and the things that you're suggesting uh, around this this area. Fantastic.
2: So talk to us about the connection that you see in between stress, motivation, and that sense of control or agency, as Randy was referencing.
4: One thing in our book, we talk about uh, is, is um, something called the Yerkes-Dodson Law, and it's a bell curve, basically, kind of an upside-down U. And so we're on radio here, not uh, television, source. so if you can, if you can picture U, uh, and going up and down on the Y-axis is performance from low to high, and then across the bottom is stress. Now, it, it can be stress or it can be excitement. And what happens is if the stress is too low or the excitement or the It's actually cortisol. If the arousal is too low, performance isn't very good. So if you're not motivated at all, not much is going to get done. But as the arousal gets higher, as the excitement and enthusiasm and maybe a little bit of pressure gets higher, then the performance improves. And at some point at the top of that curve, there's an optimal place of arousal. But as you go further out to the right and the stress gets higher, the performance falls apart. And so what we're trying to do is for every kid in every activity, figure out how to have him or her in place of optimal arousal. And the challenge is, is, you and I can be in the exact same situation and experience that differently. It might be exciting for you and stressful for me. And the problem is, an outside person can't know where that perfect place is. You can feel it yourself. And so a big part of, of, sort of, is, of giving kids autonomy is to allow them to throttle a little bit the amount of stress that they feel so they experience enough to be challenged and be motivated but not so much that they're overwhelmed. And we see a lot of kids who are are pushed or pulled, you know, out of their optimal zone where they're either, you know, so anxious they can't perform or they're so under motivated that they just they don't really want to do anything.
3: And and I'll I'll add that what what Ned and I have been lecturing together for probably eight or nine years now uh, about how stress affects kids and about the development of motivation. And we, we decided we wanted to write up the stuff that's most helpful, that we find most helpful to, to parents and educators, we're talking about what's the, what's the thing that pulls us all together? And it was this idea of a sense of control. And because we, we knew that there's a great neuroscientist who says that, that the things that make life stressful can be summarized with the acronym NUTS, novelty, unpredictability, threat, and a low sense of control. And we figured that that because stress is chronic stress is so impairing, both mentally and, and psychologically, it, that this must be a really big deal. If a, if, if a, a high sense of control pre- basically prevents people from experiencing really the the, the, the the deleterious effects of stress, and we also knew that every place that we looked in terms of how do kids become self-motivated, the key was autonomy. Whether it's Carol Dweck's work on mindsets, the idea that I, I can develop my own life, or whether it's, it's the self determination theory with a huge emphasis on autonomy, or whether it's the, the experience of being in flow where you're completely engaged in something that's important to you and you're working really hard. We figured this must be a really big deal if it's so crucial for being be able to develop a, for mental health and for motivation.
2: Mm-hmm. So having an almost 16-year-old, I think sometimes as a parent, you struggle to help the child find that optimal level of sort of autonomy and pressure and stress and motivation to meet all the daily, um, you know, tasks for school, sports, friends, you know, family obligations.
4: Parenting has never been easy, and it's certainly, it's certainly not easier today, I think, than when we were growing up. So uh, we're, we're really sympathetic to, to, to all parents. And you know, we, Bell's kids are, are, uh, are, are fully grown, and I have a 14- and 16-year-old, and I'm, I'm in the trenches right now, and uh, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. It's not easy, but, but part of it we think about, it, if we think that it's our job to make it turn out well, it really changes the energy in ways that are not helpful. If we assume that the kids want to be successful and it's our job to help, and you can even start with, how can
3: I help? Rather than, shouldn't you do this? Mm-hmm. I, test, I tested the, the child of a humorist about 30-some years ago. <laughs> he said, we really shouldn't call it raising children. We should call it lowering parents. Because, because it's hard. <laughs> it, it, it's often humbling. And, and nobody gets it right every single time.
1: <laughs> So let's move on to this idea of control and underlying assumptions around this idea of control. And early on in the book, you discuss the importance of control and present some of these false assumptions that we need to move beyond if we're to shift our mindsets about how we give our children agency. Can you share one or two of these assumptions and why they're faulty?
3: Sure. One is that, in, and in the D.C. area, we, we may see more of it than you do uh, in Allentown, but it's the idea that there's one road to success, and it involves being a top student and a top athlete and getting into the most elite college possible, and that's how kids become successful. Hmm. And th- so the message to the top 10% is this is crucial to our students. This is crucial to success in your life, and you have to compete with each other and and be pushed constantly to to achieve at a high level, or as many of the the kids around here think, I'll end up working McDonald's. I I, I gave a lecture to uh, a group of 11th grade AP English teachers about stress and, and sleep deprivation, what it does to the brain. And at the end of the lecture, their teacher came up and whispered to me, they all think it's either Yale or McDonald's. And so there's this idea, and we just, every time we talk, we talk to people who weren't top students. And I was a 2 8, a C plus student in high school and got a PhD and have a pretty successful life, even though I wasn't a top student. So that, that's one. Um, and another is is that, is that the idea that pushing kids, that they're chronically pushing them, is the best way for them to, to become successful. And the, the fact is that kids don 't need to be pushed all the time, none of us uh, we kids need to be challenged, and we want kids to work hard we, we want them to be stressed at times we want we want to we want to extend them to their limits, but we don 't want them to be chronically stressed we don 't want them chronically pressured because that just is terrible for the brain and
1: and that 's a great part of the book too that where you 're challenging those assumptions because if we 're going to truly change the way that we approach agency and control, we have to come to grips with what are we thinking about that that is a false assumption, because we actually think it's true, probably.
4: I mean, for us, really, we think that the most important work of childhood and adolescence, and therefore anyone who is supporting children and adolescents, is the development of a healthy brain. That, that you're wiring the brain you're going to have for the rest of your life. And so you want a brain that can cope well with stress, that can take on challenging situations and bounce back from them, and also one that's internally motivated rather than externally motivated. And so, so I think a lot of parents have this idea. Well, I'm, just, I'm going to push her now, I'm just, I'll, I'll push, push, push. And at some point, I'll stop. But if, if you have a lifetime of growing up with external motivation and no internal, and all of a sudden the external motivation stops, it's not like you then just default to then mm-hmm. having internal motivation. You have to start early developing, fostering that sense of internal motivation in order for that to grow. And an external is really really in opposition to that.
1: Yeah, it makes so much sense.
3: And we, we feel that that, you know, we, we, we talk to a lot of uh, high-achieving kids who are, who are really anxious, who are not happy. I talk to a lot of high-achieving parents who are very anxious and, and not happy. And what we say is that, we, I want your kid to be successful. I want him to be successful as he wants to be, but I want him to be able to enjoy the success. And when kids experience a low sense of control, and experience chronic stress and chronic sleeplessness as so many high school kids do, it's just, it just changes the brain in a way that just makes it more likely that they're going to be anxious and, and or depressed and or depressed and not be able to enjoy their success.
2: So you encourage parents um, in the book to become more of a consultant to their children and less of a boss or directing <laughs> manager. What does that look like? You know, what does it sound like in today's world? And you know, how is that different? And why is it important?
4: I was I was at a back to school night uh, event last night with my kid and I and I with my son who's a junior and I ran into uh, a bunch of parents. This one mom had reading a book and saying it's really hard, you know, and we're trying to get her daughter to do this and that. And the other and I and I said may I offer you some advice? And she said, sure. And I said, when you talk to your daughter, you simply say, may I offer you some advice? And it completely changes the energy because when, when, when people are self-directed, when they're thinking well, planning well, building their lives in productive ways, they're really engaging the prefrontal cortex, right? That part right behind your forehead where you have all these executive functions of planning and organizing and emotional and mental flexibility. And when, when, when that goes well, it's running the rest of your brain. And when things are going poorly, especially with anxiety and depression, your amygdala, which is kind of like the threat detector in your brain, is going off. And it just completely kicks those executive, executive functions right to the curve. And so the challenge so often is, is kids can feel when, when, when mom or dad or the teacher coach is about to launch into something. And, and and if their stress response goes off, then as a parent, I'm sitting there having a conversation with a kid that I think is rational, but it's not because that rational part of his brain has has you know gone gone far, far away. And and he'll say anything just to get me to stop and, and, and not feel like I'm I'm telling him what to do. Mm-hmm. So for us, if you want to be a consultant, you make the assumption that it's the kid's life it's his work, it's his homework, it's his test, it's his whatever. And it's not our job to make our kids get great grades or our job to make them do their homework. I mean, partly that's, it's, it's an absurdity because if a kid didn't want to do his homework, he could just lie flat on the ground, close his eyes, and go, la, 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 But I mean, What are you going to do, you know, clockwork, orange? <laughs>
1: yeah.
4: So it's, it's a terrible situation because it's super stressful as a parent to try to get someone to do something that he doesn't want to do. And so you and, and I know a lot of parents say, "Well, if I don't make him do it, he won't do it at all." And short term, probably yeah. But we think it makes a heck of a lot of sense to treat all children and especially teenagers with the with the philosophy that they have brains in their heads and they want their lives to work out and they want to be successful. And some kids will kind of take their lives, the car of their lives, and run it straight into the ditch because that's the only way that they feel they can exert control of their lives. So, you know, if you can sort of take the sail out of the kid's wind, right, you're, getting, you're going to have a very different energy, and you could, you're helping. And say, May, I offer some advice. Okay, how can I help you? How can I help you, pal? Is a lot different from shouldn't you be doing whatever.
3: Yeah. You know, there's – 32 years ago, I wrote a, a, a couple of papers on homework, and I just discovered that at that time, after 60 years of research – no one had been able to demonstrate that homework contributed to learning in elementary school, and I was shocked. I was stunned, and, and it's, it's pretty much the same uh, 30 years later. But I, 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 I thought I, I saw so many underachieving kids where pa- parents would say, "We fight all night about this homework. It's like it's, it's like living hell at home regarding homework." Thought, what is this all for? So I, I wrote an article and I suggested to parents say to their kids, "I love you too much to fight with you about your homework." And then you think about yourself as a consultant. I'm willing to help. I'm willing to do anything I can to support you. As Ned said, you you offer to help. You offer advice if the kids want it. And treating them respectfully like this, it it has an amazing effect. Because if we work harder to help a kid do well than the kid does, it it weakens the kid. If we spend 80 80 units of energy trying to help the kid be successful, he'll spend 20. And it doesn't change until the energy changes.
1: So if we take this idea of consultant versus boss slash manager, I'm connecting that to a lot of the conversations that we have about changing teaching and learning, and particularly the role of the learner, yes. the role of the teacher. Wow. And that seems very applicable. Are there other things that, other pieces of advice that you might offer to us as educators for how we want to shape uh, this idea of students owning their learning or being self-driven about their learning?
3: It's it's so challenging for schools, uh, you know, this notion that uh, I, 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 one of my friends, uh, who was also a neuropsychologist many years ago, took some training in a specific kind of psychotherapy. And the therapists were told don't work harder to help your clients solve their problems than they do because they're going to be, they'll end up thinking that you're somehow you're responsible to solve it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've been applying this with, I've, I've trained hundreds of tutors over the years to work with kids with learning disabilities and, and I trained them in this idea that if it feels like you're working harder, say something's wrong with this picture. Mm-hmm. I was in an IEP meeting in, in a good public school here in, in the D.C. area a couple months ago and the speech pathologist was talking about how she's been working with a kid on articulation for five years, and he just he's, he's constantly fights her. And I said, does it feel like you work harder to help him with his articulation than he does? And she says, I work 10 times harder than he does. And I said, well, that, it, it, we, it, it, you can't help kids if we work harder than they do. And the challenge in schools is your mission is to educate kids and get them to perform well. And if we say, well, we aren't going to work harder than your kid, it feels like you're giving up on kids. I feel this is, this is one of the great challenges of promoting autonomy, if we really do it, that, that we, we run the risk of parents being angry or, or kids for at least temporarily until they get the idea that this is their life, not doing well.
2: So at the end of each chapter, you will provide us some suggestions in the form of sort of what can you do tonight? What are a couple of high-level actions parents and educators can do after listening to this podcast? And I, and I already got one, no lectures in the car with a captive audience. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> you no know, lectures in the car yeah.
4: with a captive audience. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, for 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 us, probably the biggest thing that we think that would really transform learners and 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 experience in, in all schools is if kids were more well rested than they are. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that we know that the effects of sleep deprivation on the brain are, are remarkably similar to the effects of stress, or for that matter, you know, being intoxicated. When I was, I grew up in rural Connecticut, you know, a million years ago, as I tell my students, and of course they know there was no internet back then, and there was, I didn't have cable television because I lived in the sticks, and because I'm a big geek, I had no girlfriend, so I had no compelling reason to stay up late at night, and so I was just well-rested, and I'd show up at school every day, and, and, and it just, the teachers were pretty effective, and I listened, and I understood it was great but we know the like MythBusters showed that that the, the people can drive a car better legally intoxicated than they can clinically sleep deprived not that i recommend either and and so so, so many kids if they're sleep deprived it's almost like that they're showing up to school intoxicated now the the challenge is you can make a kid fall asleep but i also think that that we think that this is something that families should take on, you know, just like the use of technology. How do we support each other in getting more sleep, in part because, I was, in part because when people are tired, their stress response is more intense. And so, so if you feel like people who are upset or frustrated or, or angry near you are upset or, or frustrated or angry at you, uh, and so for, for me, if there's anything that I would push on school systems it would be trying to do everything they can, whether a later start to the school day or making homework, you know, optional, ungraded. Um, and certainly for families, trying to figure out how to help kids be adequately rested because it, it, it lowers their stress and increases their motivation.
3: And I, I, I agree with everything that said. We say in our book, if we were teachers, we'd much rather teach a kid for four hours who'd slept for eight hours. To teach a kid for eight hours and slept for four mm-hmm. and I think that uh, and I, I think also there, there's many ways that, that parents and and, and and teachers can support autonomy in kids and, and part of it is by just simply asking their opinion getting their feedback treating them respectfully like they want to learn so when they're giving assignments you know just, just asking I want feedback about this assignment let me know if it works for you w- ways that that, that that ways that we can increase that they can sense that this is my life and, I, and if, if I work hard at something, I'll, I'll, I can get better and better at it. I also think, that the, so one, one aspect of the sense of control is, is a sense of agency that's so important to you folks and so important to us and, and a sense of autonomy, but also that, that when you feel anxious or you feel highly stressed or you feel unhappy, you, you experience a very low sense of control. Your brain experiences a very low sense of control. And I think that part of what we want to do as parents and educators is think about how do we stimulate kids and support them to, to, to develop and encourage them, to push them a bit in a way that, where they don't feel chronically overwhelmed. I mean, high school seniors now get six and a half hours of sleep, and when they go to college, the, the, the significant majority of them say, I felt totally overwhelmed my whole senior year. And when we know what chronic stress and sleep deprivation does to the developing brain, we think something's wrong with this picture. And so I, I think if we think about how do we support autonomy and how do we help kids be challenged w- w- without being chronically overloaded, chronically tired, chronically stressed.
4: And, and the other, I'll have one more thing. We also talk quite a bit about plan B thinking, the idea of alternate routes. You know, as, as Bill was saying before, when we, when we give the message either directly or, 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 or subtly that only t- kids who are the top 10% will be successful in life. You pick 90% of kids, say, kind of, why even bother? Mm-hmm. But when you when you give when you make the idea that there are many many paths to success which might go through elite colleges or college or, or not college at all, it makes it safer for kids to, to try at school even if they don't uh, even if they aren't really successful. I mean I, I'm a test prep geek right, so I you know help kids go through these ridiculous tests the ACT and the SAT, and for some of them they really don't shine there very well. And so the first time I get it, you know I, I always find a way as, as early as possible to pull up fairtest.org, which holds a list of the plus colleges and universities in this country that are test score optional. And I said when you look at all these remarkable places that they had, I had no idea you could go to those colleges without taking the SAT. They're so, they can totally exhale, and they're so relieved. And now they actually almost always want to work hard at the SAT, and they work harder, and they're not constantly looking over the shoulder, because they know if they whiff, their, their, their options aren't zero. They can swing as hard, they can swing for the fences, and they know they've got a great plan B.
1: All right. So lots of uh, interesting things to put out there for our listeners. Uh, before we wrap this up, uh, we finish each episode with a series of questions for our guests. So um, this could be rapid fire, uh, just sort of short, short answer kind of thing. Uh, and it connects to sort of the conversation that we've been having. So first question, who is one expert our listeners should connect with to learn more about parenting today?
4: Well, I love Lisa Damore. Uh, she wrote the book Untangled, and it's all about you know adolescent girls and, and how to help them navigate through that. Uh, she's a frequent contributor uh, on uh, CBS this morning, I guess, to the show. Uh, and She's she's just terrific.
3: Yeah, and I, I love Jane Nelson's classic book, Positive Discipline, uh, which, which advocates th- this authoritative approach to parenting that we set limits and, and we're assertive about our our own lives. The kids don't run the family, but we treat kids respectfully. We value their opinions, and we want them to become these self-driven, self-motivated uh, people who have a sense of their own life.
1: I remember reading that book at the beginning of my teaching career, yeah, like years 30 ago. years ago. Yeah,
3: <laughs> It's still great. I just read, yeah, it. Yeah. I read it. Yeah,
1: excellent. Um, so that kind of leads into our next one. Uh, next question was, if you were recommending one book to our listeners, what would it be? Is there, are there any other um, book resources that you'd suggest?
4: Well, for, for educators, the one book that I, and, and, te- and, and parents too, there's a book called The Deepest Well, and it's healing the long-term effects of childhood adversity. It's Nadine Burke Harris, who is, a, her work is cited in Paul Tuft's How Children Succeed, another great book, and she looks at what are called ACE scores, which is adverse childhood experiences, and so it's a really quick inventory of where you ever homeless was there death in the family, was there incarceration, was there physical, sexual, emotional abuse, drug addiction, and so on and so forth. And these things are simply proxies for how much stress a, a child experiences growing up. And we know that the chronic, and, or in this case, toxic stress, is so harmful to the development of a well regulated stress response and so harmful to the healthy development of the prefrontal cortex. And, and she had this great study done with NIH that found that with people who have an A score four or higher, roughly 51% of that population will have either a behavioral disorder or a learning disability. So for, we, we all have everyone, anyone who works with kids has children who you know who are really struggling in ways that tends to make us ask, "What's wrong with you?" And what Dr. Berg Harris says is we should really just pivot that question to, "What happened to you?" And it makes that conversation a lot more empathetic. It puts us much more in a consultative role of, gosh, what happened there? What are some of the things that we can do to make it easier for you to heal and grow and develop as a learner?
1: Hmm. The importance of language.
3: And I'll say that uh, uh, that I, I think uh, a recent book by, uh, called Reclaiming Conversation by, I'm just blanking on her name, but it uh, was sure, uh, yeah. Sherry, I, I think that Sherry Turkle's recent book, Reclaiming Conversation, is a really important book. I mean, when, when we lecture, the, the first question we get is always about, what about video games and social media? This is what makes childbirth so much harder now than it was 20 years ago. It's how do we help kids to develop a healthy relationship with technology? And I think that, that, that Sherry Turkle's book, but it emphasizes strongly how important face-to-face interaction is, and something that, that's disappearing uh, gradually in our culture, and how important a sense of, of face-to-face interaction is for the development of empathy, for the development of social competence, um, and I, th- I think that, that it's, it's, a, it's a really good guide, I think, for navigating this whole technological world and thinking about what we, how we need to support kids.
1: Okay, and our last question, how do you keep learning about this passion of yours, this interest? What resources do you access that you could share with our listeners?
4: Well, I probably spent a lot of, maybe too much time uh, on like the New York times online, um, which is for me just a great aggregator of things. I mean, everything that I read, I, I simply think, how does this apply uh, to, to kids? Right. So there's all the great science stuff, uh, the, 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 Gretchen uh, Reynolds, who writes the Well blog uh, for the New York Times, has all the stuff about science and brains and 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 uh, exercise. And so I love reading the Times because it'll it'll bring something to my attention, and then I can go off down a rabbit hole and read more about what that researcher or writer uh, was
3: was sharing.
2: We always joke about the rabbit holes. <laughs>
3: yeah. And I I, uh, I I I turn to Science Digest a lot oh. you know, just in terms of and in, 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 we'll. we'll, we'll Search for certain topics related to psychology or child development or or, or the brain, uh, for current studies that, that allow me recent studies that, that allow me to pursue things in a little bit more detail. Um, and kind of kind of mention one other thing that, sure. that, that in, t- in terms of what, what we recommend for parents, you know that, that so much of our emphasis in our book, that the first few chapters, are, are on, a, on thinking yourself as a consultant. Supporting kids and making their own decisions, making informed decisions with our help, and we found that kids can make very good decisions themselves. And I think one of the most important ch- chapters in our book is Chapter Four, which is called "A Non-Anxious Presence," and it's the idea that systems work best when the people who are leaders are not anxious and emotionally reactive. And, and we know with little kids that they're easy, it's easier to soothe an infant or to help a, a toddler who's tantruming if we stay calm. And we find what happens when these kids get older is, is the parents think that the most important thing is kid always doing well. So if a kid doesn't well, that the parents land on the kid or give him advice and, and ground him or whatever. And, and we think that when we can be calm and emotionally reactive, but it's one of the best things we can do. And we're, we're struck by the fact that so many kids that we see now have been diagnosed with anxiety disorders. Mm-hmm. And it almost never occurs to parents that one of the things that they can do to help is be less anxious themselves. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, we, we think that when our kids aren't doing well, most of our important work is on ourselves. We, we, we can't change our kids. We can certainly encourage them, and we can certainly get them help if they need it. But we can't change our kids. But we have some some control over how we look at things, how we think about things. And th- th- this this chapter in our book on, on being non-anxious presence, I think, right, my my feeling, my my work, is really powerful because if it, mm-hmm. it, it be, not be overreactive, you can stay calm. You can be so much more helpful. You can be a consultant. You can offer advice. You can but you don't leap in to solve a kid's problem you don't land on a kid uh, you don't start yelling at them so so often I'm always struck by the fact that I'll be embarrassed to yell at their kid for getting mad (laughs) (laughs) so
1: So, lots of great resources Uh, we'll be sure that Uh, those are in the show notes. And it really does give us and our listeners a glimpse into, you know, how you continue to think about this. And it was a really fascinating conversation today. Thank you.
2: Yeah, I appreciate that you shared that sort of take a breath and collect yourself before you present and ask, how how may I help? (laughs) So what's next for both of you? What are you currently working on that you'd like to share with our listeners?
4: Well, right now we're on our—it's our, Bill and Ned's excellent adventure. We're sort of on, on the road, <laughs> road tour to phase of our uh, of our extravaganzas. So we'll be kind of hopscotching all over the country talking, uh, and we have a couple ideas for for, for yeah. next books.
3: Yeah, I, I, yeah. We're we're just we have so many people want us to, to come and talk about our, our book. We're just having so much fun doing it that we'll do that kind of we'll pick, we'll run that one. The next project is probably going to be. Uh, a, a book on a sense of control for kids, a short book on a, a, for, for teenagers, and then a book on a sense of control for adults. Hmm. And I think that, that uh, we, both of us uh, do, do a fair amount of work with adults and think that so much of what's in our books, so, so much of the feedback we get from parents and educators is that this really helped me, that this changed me. It, it, it's good for my kid, but it really it, it helped me understand. When we were working on the book, we were so struck by the fact that everywhere we look, if there's a problem it involved a low sense of control. And whether somebody was, was, was sleep deprived or whether somebody was reacting because the, uh, they, they felt that other people were trying to control them, it's a really powerful construct that we're going to try to apply for kids and then for adults.
2: Mm-hmm. And how are we going to help get them motivated to want to read that book? Uh, teenagers? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Can you, can you embed it in a
2: video game or uh, yeah, add it to the, yeah. you have to, you have to listen to an audio chapter before the next level.
4: <laughs> well, again, I'm we just think,
2: kidding. We, that would be giving you I, know I, control. Yeah, like it's I it's heard the painted, message.
4: You know, <laughs> most kids want to be successful.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Deep down. That's, that's very true. So thanks so much for joining us today, Bill and Ned. Um, there's so much in the book that we didn't get to talk, to talk about today, more about sleep and technology and exercise. And if you want to go deeper, pick up a copy of the book, The Self-Driven Child, and to learn more about Bill's and Ned's work, there are some links in the show notes, including um, all of the references that they shared, the books and uh, colleagues that they are um, suggesting. We follow up to learn more.
1: Each episode, we leave you with a question to think about with the idea-provoking of conversation. This episode's question—actually, it's two questions—how self-driven are the children in your life, and what can you do today to provide them with more agency over their developing into young adults? If you've enjoyed this episode, would like to comment or check out the resources shared today, visit the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for Season 5, Episode 8. That's all for now. We'll be back soon with another conversation featuring other innovative thought leaders. Thanks again, Bill and Ned.
2: Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Ned. Bye-bye.
3: Bye-bye. My pleasure.